Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. Welcome to Check This Out at the Hanover Library, the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire. I'm so excited tonight. My guest is the second in our series of Check This Out, Kelly J. Ford. I'm thrilled to have her here. In this exciting new series, we are introducing you to authors and books that we think you should be reading and talking about. Thank you so much to the Howe Library Corporation for sponsoring this amazing series. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I absolutely love this book, Real Bad Things. If you guys haven't read it yet, go out, buy a copy, read it, or check it out of your library. So <laughs> it's a good one, right? <laughs> you gotta laugh. It's the best name ever. All right, before we get started, for those of you that don't know Kelly, I'm just going to read a quick bio, and then we're going to jump right in. Perfect. All right, here we go. Kelly J. Ford is the author of the award-winning Cottonmouth, also an amazing novel, a novel of impressive depths of character and setting, according to the LA Review, which named it one of their best books of 2017. An Arkansas native, Kelly writes about the power and pitfalls of friendship, the danger of long-held secrets, and the transcendent grittiness of the Ozarks and their surrounds. She lives in Vermont with her wife and cat. And I'm so excited to have you here tonight. Thank you, Kelly. So tell us, what is this amazing book, Real Bad Things, about? Uh, Real Bad Things, it's my second novel, as Rachel mentioned. It is about a woman who returns home 25 years after confessing to her stepfather's murder. Uh, she was never convicted because there was no body, no crime for those Taylor Swift fans out there. <laughs> and. Um, that would be me. <laughs> and me, super Swifties. Um, perfect. And uh, so once a body does turn up after a historic flood in, um, in the Arkansas River, Jane Mooney returns home to pay the consequences, but other secrets come to light with that flood as well. So this is truly gritty, there's crime, there's love, there's sex, there's death, right? There's mystery, all of the things you can find in a book. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, but the craziest thing is the book opens and this woman had confessed, right? Jane had confessed mm -hmm. to a murder that she, there was no body, but she confessed, right? I want to make sure you got this, like no body, no body. but she confessed. So uh, one of my favorite paragraphs in the book, actually, you write, I'm having a hard time figuring out why you'd confess to a murder during a routine questioning at your home when the cops didn't even have a case. It's almost like you were making sure someone else didn't say it first. Oh my. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> so you're setting up a secret. Can you talk about why did you decide, why did you land on this idea that you're going to write a book about a murder without a body, right? <laughs> and then the body that surfaces 25 years later. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Arkansas. Um, Mod Bottoms is based on um, actually the Bottoms, which is a real place out by Lock and Dam 13. Um, and so in, it's um, the Arkansas River is right there. And so I'm always fascinated by this idea of not fascinated, that sounds terrible, but of drowning. Um, <laughs> I know it sounds terrible. So I've always had that in my mind. And I've always I don't know, I'm drawn to themes about missing people and what happens to the people left behind. And so I really wanted to also think about, I, I love whodunits, but I don't necessarily like writing whodunits. I prefer to read and write about why it something happened and kind of, you know, you see someone and you figure out that, oh, 
you know, what happened to you? And then you kind of tunnel back and go back to the beginning, kind of like, what happened here? Yeah. So it's really fun for me. And I was a psychology major, so I'm just like super into the psychological uh -huh. aspects of characters. Yes, there's a lot of psychology in this book, I would say. Um, I mean, in particular, this idea that Jane had a rough childhood, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we read about, you know, sort of how she got to that moment, how there came to be a body. And um, there were a lot of hard things. I mean, she grew up, um, you know, with a lot of domestic abuse in her life, right? A lot of violence. She was hungry. There wasn't a lot of money, um, right? There were sort of a lot of very hard, heavy subjects that um, come into play behind this, you know, the disappearance of her stepdad, right. <laughs> Warren, right? Um, and so there's a lot of mystery. And all of a sudden, she's confessing. Mm -hmm. And no one is really surprised. Right. So can you talk about, you know, the fact that she's confessing and no one's surprised and there's still nobody? <laughs> Why is the whole town behind this idea, right, believing that she did it? Well, I think it's one of those things. I mean, if you watch enough true crime docuseries, which I do, especially HBO, um, I love those. There's always this idea of a confession being kind of the be all end all. And the idea of false confessions is fascinating to me because they know that someone has gone missing. They know that something's wrong, but they don't have a body. So naturally they can't hold her, but that stigma stays with her because again, why would you confess to something? There's something else going on. And I think in a lot of small towns and even, you know, neighborhoods in bigger cities, there's, there's this, um, this chatter that people love and it's kind of like oh that's the person who confessed to murdering her stepfather but they never found the body so it's that gossip item in there and so that's why I included things like um the excerpts from let's talk about ma the local two local body shop workers who are on the case and are always yeah. talking about what's going on in town and kind of feeding the fire. Yes, so we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Yeah, but first I want to stick with the body, yeah. right? <laughs> so we've got Jane, she hated her stepfather and um, you know, he goes he missed he goes missing, she goes out, she lives her life for 25 years outside, right? Of Maud Bottoms. Yes. And then she comes back and she is expected to pay for his funeral, right? <laughs> so you write this amazing scene where she's like shopping for coffins for this man that she hated, right? Who terrorized her. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that was a brilliant scene. Can you talk about how that came together in your head? Yeah, so Jane goes back to town because of her mother. And so there is a complicated familial relationship there. They obviously do not get along, um, but Jane, Jane and her brother Jason basically grew up with neglect and she still has a hole in her heart from, you know, the love she hasn't gotten from her mother. And so in many ways, whether she wants to or not, she's always trying to perform and get that love from her mother, even if it's really twisted, such as buying, paying for the coffin of the person you confessed to murdering. It's so twisted. And yet we're laughing because there's something almost humorous about the fact that it could be that terrible, right? It's like another, you sort of treat these really heavy topics with humor. And I think they open up a way for us to talk about it. Um, and one of my favorite, of course, is the town calls Jane Leslie Borden. Right. <laughs> How did you come to that name? It's brilliant. It just felt right. Uh, Growing up, not growing up, but um, spending much of my adult life in Boston, you know, you you hear about Lizzie. I can't even remember how to Lizzie, say it correctly. Lizzie, Lizzie Borden, Borden um, in Rhode Island, and just knowing about that, and I just thought 
you know, with these small towns and with these kind of um, crimes, people always have a nickname for them. So I, it was just funny to me. Yeah. I don't know. Some people are like, oh, but um, <laughs> I, I think humor is a way that so many people cope with trauma and strange events that happen. Yeah, definitely. So one of the secrets that comes out through the book, of course, right, is um, Jane has had a love affair growing up or, uh, you know, sort of love interest, I guess. And it's this other woman, uh, Georgia Lee, who is in the closet. Um, she's queer, but she's not ready to talk about it. And 25 years later, she's still not ready to talk about it. Right. She's ashamed. But this is one of those secrets. Um, can you talk about how that was buried into the story, too? I think so. They began as kind of first loves for one another, true first loves, even if they had, you know, been with other people, um, the person they really connected with. But because of this event that happened and her stepfather going missing, it kind of cleaved their lives. And so there was really no way to go back. So I, I, I saw them as kind of interrupted. And there's their own story never got to have any closure. And so I think when you've got that kind of abrupt non-ending, it, it just sticks with you. And I wanted to explore what that would be like for someone who just one day you're having a normal day and the very next it's the worst day of your life and you can't really even see the person that means the most to you and explore what all that means with them because you're just not allowed, like Georgia Lee's parents literally locked her in a room. Right. Rather than admit that she was in love with another girl. Right. So um, that was handled just beautifully. And I think that um, one of the themes that you really bring out through the queer relationship, but through the entire book in the small town was, um, you talk about, you have this one great sentence. This was like one of my favorite. You wrote, uh, there were rules for women and there were rules for men. And you talk about that a lot in the book, and I really want you to talk about it. <laughs> in person, <laughs> help me. Well, it's something I'm very familiar with. Um, I, in my day job, I work in IT, and I'm a project manager. I'm almost exclusively, I've almost exclusively worked with uh, in male-focused fields, male-dominated. Um, I'm usually the only woman at the table, so I know what that's like. And I think, too, when you're a queer woman, especially if you're butch, which I'm not, but you know, just knowing butch women, um, there's this camaraderie that a lot of cishet white men kind of try to have you where it's like they throw it up. And um, it's almost like this outsider view that that your position that you're in to kind of see, oh, you can get away with so many things, but you're still a woman and you can't get away with it. And it's just living under patriarchy. Yes, <laughs> but you call it out. And I love I mean, that. I you have to. I mean, I call it out at work. I call it out, you know, in my employment history because it's important and it we have to lift others up yeah. behind us. But there's something about, I mean, writing that set up down, right? Like putting yeah. it in a book makes it real and makes it something that we get to talk about right, right tonight. Um, so another thing that I think you did so beautifully that you make us talk about um, a little bit towards the end, um, we have uh, you know a conversation with a uh, police officer mm -hmm. and you wrote, uh, you got called out to the house all the time and you didn't do a thing. She glared at him. I remember you smirking at Warren, that was her stepdad, abusive stepdad, joking about women, how they're sensitive, how sometimes things get out of hand but it was no big deal, right? These things work their way out on their own in the home. And the officer says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then she says, after you left, Diane hit me, gave me a concussion. 
I didn't go to school for a week. So there we go. You also have rules that write the police officers following, like, ah, women, whatever. It just works it out, work themselves out. But here you're, you call that out and you do that so beautifully. Was that hard to put that on the page? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I experienced, uh, I grew up in parts of a domestic violence situation with my stepfather um, and in my my mother's home. And so it was difficult because you don't really realize the impact that it has sometimes until you're older and you're away and you can kind of see it a little bit more objectively. Um, but it's a reality for so many people and it's a reality for friends I've had, family members I've had. And um, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's not talked about enough, but um, I definitely think it's something shouldn't shy away from and you know not all things are rosy and so yeah just kind of fit with this particular narrative but that attitude too of like oh the women will just work it out right this is just the way it goes and the police officer leaving and then this child has a concussion for a week right right I was so glad to see you put it on the page although it was very hard to read and um you wrote about the the abuse, the way it affected the children, the brother and sister, right? And how they were terrified every time his car pulled up. Right. What, what Warren were they going to see? Right. Right. And, and I just thought, like, how do you, how did you dig into yourself to write that? I mean, I had a hard time reading it. Yeah. How hard was that to write it? I think it was hard in some ways, but not in another. Like, it's, it's that fear is a familiar feeling. And sometimes I think, you know, when you grow up in that situation, it's almost comforting. There, there are, you know, lots of studies in psychology about how the trauma response, sometimes you go toward the event that caused you trauma because there's comfort there, which is really weird. Um, there's a great book, The Body Keeps the Score, that goes into this much better than I ever could. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really going into, I think, that trance-like state that happens when you're writing. And you're just like, this is what this is what is happening and it comes out on the page. And sometimes I'm not, I'm not even aware of it. Yeah. Like it's not planned out. It's just what happened because I'm so, it's like I'm, I'm the director and the actors and the writer all at once when I'm putting it on the page. Wow. That's really impressive. That's really amazing. (laughs) It comes out that way. I mean, it was so visceral and I could see, right. So, so emotional. It was just beautifully done with the right touch. And then not far from that, you have the humor to lighten up the moment, right? And then we hear about Leslie Borden. So it's like, you take us down and then you bring us up. And it's like, okay, I can, I can breathe and I can keep breathing now. Yeah. So I thought that was done beautifully. And I think that's a very common thing for a lot of people. Dark humor really helps us get through tough times. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so you had touched on it briefly, what I'm going to call is the Greek chorus. Yes. Right? (laughs) So um, I thought this was beautiful. And also there was sort of this whole theme that I read into the book. Maybe it wasn't there. You can tell me this like Odysseus, right? Like Jane sort of has this childhood and then she goes out and she lives most of her adult life somewhere else. And then she comes back, right? like back to her home to see what's there. And you have a Greek chorus. I know. <laughs> Can you talk about your Greek chorus? Sure. You make me sound more intelligent than I am because <laughs> I definitely true. never even thought of that. <laughs> so I love Not it. true. I'm going to use it all the time. It's like Odysseus. <laughs> um, 
So I, I do love the Greek chorus. I, I've read it, I think the first time I really understood what I was reading when I read something like that was Serena by Ron Rash. Mm -hmm. And he had all these workers um, yes. in this lumber mill back I haven't thought about that book in years. Right? And yes. so I was like, wow, that's really great because you've got these two characters who are so close yes. and so focused and kind of, not in a narcissistic way, but they're so focused internally that it was really fun to be able to pull away the camera in a way and show what the town was thinking through the voices of these two auto body guys who they just, whenever I wrote that, I definitely was channeling my dad who is basically all caps all the time and um, exclamation points. And it's just like the most ridiculous thing you could possibly think or say. I'm like, that's let's talk about mod. <laughs> okay, I just want to say that Kelly's deadpan <laughs> delivery of that. My dad is all caps all the time. That's the way your books read, right? Like you stop and you're like, wait, that was funny. That was funny. <laughs> so your dad is all caps all the time, and he was channeling this course. Yeah, yeah. So I was channeling him and, and kind of his voice. I was like, well, well, it would be like if my dad and his best friend from his factory job sunshine just got together and they were like let's talk about work <laughs> and then so yeah. they just pick all these different topics around town to kind of explore explore <laughs> really just talk about gossip about yeah and it's just fun yeah and it gives you a different angle and lets other people in the town kind of have a voice yeah I love it. I just thought it was great and it added so much to it. Um, so one of the other themes that I really loved in this book, real bad things. <laughs> um, Kelly knows I love to show the cover to remind everybody this is the book we're talking about. Um, but what I really wanted to ask you about too is this question of what is family and what are you returning to? Because Jane lived most of her life outside of the bottoms, right? Like she wasn't there. And yet that is where her soul was in so many ways. So um, like, how did you come to that? And how did you think about that as you were writing? I think with family, especially with queer communities, family is found family and it's chosen family. And that's certainly the case for Jane. But even though she's been away, she still doesn't quite have that. It's almost like she's stunted in some ways because she had to leave and she doesn't have any resolution with this horrible thing that happened. And so for her, her 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 family is her brother. Um, it's her best friend George Lee Lang, and her best friend Angie Pham. And um, together they were just a core group that helped her and Jason to kind of survive their childhood yeah. the best they could. But even with that, you know, there's this bond with blood family that you can't ignore it's like as much as you're like that person is not great for me they're toxic mother however <laughs> they're still my mother and especially when you see other people you know Jane sees other people having healthy relationships with their family there's a contrast that you cannot ignore yeah yeah I mean I have to be honest at her brother as a character um I'm just going to say in the first three quarters of the book, right? I felt so torn about him. Yeah. So on the one hand, I was like, I love him. I feel bad for him. She's, you know, Jane is the protector. But then I was like, oh, I hate him. Like, <laughs> I want him to stand up for her more, like do yeah. more. So I don't know. Did you have a love-hate with him too? 
I didn't. I didn't because also I know all the <laughs> the background. Right. I know the no, spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. No spoilers. I know inner workings. So he had his his own stuff going on, and I think too, you find that with people again in trauma where the response is very different, and some people who can be very strong and bold, whereas other people they just can't. They're kind of again mm-hmm. stunted and right. they can't move past was happened um, and express themselves emotionally the same way other people can. Yeah, I guess that's what it was that he was stunted and I wanted him to just like run over and hug her and kiss her, right? And thank her, but he just didn't have that. He was so reserved and, you know, but then I just felt bad for him. So it was tough. It was a well-written character. I feel like any character you can love to hate, right? And love hate. Right. Good job. That's hard to write. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about um, writing this book. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so uh, can you talk about talk about the process? Right, there was sort of a gap between. So I know Kelly through Grub Street, of course, and so I've been through the entire process of this yes. book and books coming. And there's a bigger gap between Cotton Mouse and Real Bad Things than there's between Real Bad Things and the next book that is also coming. Um, So can you just talk about that process and going, right, how you had more time and less time? What's going on? Yeah, so Real Bad Things really came about from two different manuscripts that I had written and that both of the manuscripts were much darker. And a lot of my stuff is dark, but I can't really go out <laughs> into the world with that. I have to kind of pull it back and find a plot. <laughs> so, yeah, just make it fun. <laughs> um, so, so my my agent at the time and I, um, I had sent both manuscripts to her, and it it just wasn't quite working. And then, uh, so I took the pieces that I really love from one man from the one manuscript and I took a character mm-hmm. I loved from the other and I kind of thought about how they might work together. So for me, I always start from character and I kind of see my characters as avatars in some way. It's like you spend all this time creating them. So you can put them in any other situation and kind of see how they might react with these other characters. And so that's what I did. And I just found that there was some magic between Jane and Georgia Lee. Um, So once I had that, then it turned into getting the idea of the lock and dam and the drowning. And so building in um, some of the pieces that were just more fun and interesting. And um, again, I had to add plot. Plot is always the hardest for me. Really? Because you have so much plot in here. I I know, I know. I I never would have guessed that. So how do you come up with plot if it's so hard for you? You know, it takes a lot of time. It doesn't take as much time now. Okay. I've gotten better at it because I also, I read a lot of books. So if I, if there's something that I want to, a, a, a storyline that I want to emulate in some way, I go to my bookshelf and I find yeah. books that might be the same. I find comparable books and then I'll read it like a writer and kind of mark the places of when things happen and when point of view shifts happen so I can see kind of the flow and then I try to go back kind of like training wheels in some way or scaffolding Um, so not the exact book but just the structure and the pacing and um, tension shifts that sort of thing and um, 
it just helps me to figure it out. And then I also rely on a lot of my friends. You know, one of my um, close friends, PJ Vernon, he wrote Bathhouse. And great book, great book. Check it out. Get out. <laughs> and um, yeah, so he's really excellent with plot. So he'll he'll let me know when I go a little too long on character <laughs> internal monologue <laughs> and be like, let's think about something else we could do here. <laughs> I love that you're talking about this because I think some um, readers who are not involved in the process of writing think that these, you know, books are just born, right? Oh, no. <laughs> but actually, right, you're talking about this whole process of right. you have other readers, you have authors reading, right? And who just come out and tell you like not working, right? right? And it's so important. And I think that's the main thing that I think aspiring writers should know is that it's, it's not, it is a team sport. It can be a team sport, even if it's just your community. Like we haven't, or we have shared some reading, uh, but for the most part, we share the writing journey together, the publication journey. And that's just as important. I would say even more important than sharing each other's work. Yeah. but I think you need both. I mean, you need people who can read. You need people who you can just talk to about the writing process and the journey because it is a long one. It can be a long one. It's a tough one. It's a very long. It's a rewarding it's one. But I think so many of the rewards are the people. It sounds like a cheesy commercial. The people we've met along the way. <laughs> but it's true because I've met people like Rachel. Yeah. And now all of you. Because, <laughs> But it is. It is a very long slog. But um, what's been fascinating to me is that um, with your new publisher now, you have some serious deadlines. Oh, yes. And not all publishers have serious deadlines. So what's it like to write under a serious deadline? Oh, God, it sucks. But I, when I just say, <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, to be clear, like, there are many publishers that will be you could call up and be like, could I have another month, yeah. another six months? And most of them will say, sure, take Absolutely. your time, don't worry about it. But not Kelly's. No, that's not true. If Jessica's watching, I want her to know. She, I definitely but in the best possible it. way. Yes. I mean, it's amazing, yes. right? I was this able to get an incredible. Yes, yeah. it's an incredible book, but you have had hard deadlines. So yeah. can you talk about being under those deadlines? I mean, it's hard. It's easier probably for me because I'm a project manager in my day job. So I know about goals and priorities and time management probably more than most Um but even then, it, it's really tough because you're, I, I already had a book in mind, so I was already halfway there. But so much of the writing process is thinking. I spend tons of time thinking and letting ideas simmer and letting characters off. Yeah, just letting the characters kind of play and do their thing in my head before I even sit down to write. But when you're on a hard deadline like that, it's really hard to to get that time for thinking in there. That said, I really loved also, it was very hard emotionally, mentally, physically. (laughs) But that said, I, I do appreciate a deadline, of course. And you know, I had mentioned to all of you, I was, I'm turning in my edits today. They're due at midnight West Coast time, <laughs> developmental edits for the third book. But I really love this next book. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is the best thing I've written. So, and oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. It feels worth it. TBD if it is. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> it is. So we'll I can't see. wait. I can't wait. Um, okay, so I want to um, ask you, my last question sure. is the one that I ask every author who comes on my show, because 
Um, my listeners and people who are watching always want to know what advice do you have for new writers or aspiring writers? And I know you gave some little tidbits, but do you have anything else that you'd like to really put out there yes. for all of us to know? Yes, the thing I always say is tenacity really wins out over anything else. And, you know, there are always rules about you should write every day or you should do this. And I'm really not, even though I'm a project manager, I'm not truly a rule follower. I believe in following the rules that work for you. I can't write every day. It's just not possible. And my brain just doesn't work like that. I think about my books every day, the, the work in progress. But the only reason I got published because I was tenacious enough to keep it going. And a lot of people don't. And I was around a community again who they would, you know, be around me and support me and ask me, like you do all the time, what's going on with your book? <laughs> like, and we say this to our friends as well. We're like, have you queried yet? What are you doing over there? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a really important part of the process, right? Exactly. Because um, you don't want to answer again, like nothing. It's <laughs> a little peer pressure. Yeah. yeah. Gentle. Yeah. Gentle nudges. Gentle. They're great. So can you just give us an example of ways in which you were tenacious or what this tenacity that you're talking about? Like, what do you, can you be a little specific? Yeah. Okay. So in Cotton Mouse, that's the best example. Because Your first I, novel. Right. My call. If you haven't read it, check it out or buy a copy. Um, it took me basically from start to finish, all told, about 20 years. And there were years in there when I did not write at all. And I gave up on it. And I tried it as a screenplay. I tried it as this, as that. And the final, the final book is about 5% of the first draft. And you really had that tenacity is going back to that draft over and over. I can't even, I don't know how many number, draft number, whatever, like yeah. who knows. So I try not to keep count because it's depressing, but yeah. you know, just to know that you're going and keep going and yeah. eventually. Keep going. There. <laughs> and then you end up with a beautiful book, like yes. real bad things. Kelly Ford, thank you so much for oh, joining me here today. It's been absolutely a thrill to have you. I love the book. For people watching today, for people in the room, if you haven't, already go out there and get a copy you can get it at the Howe library here in hanover new hampshire or at your local library or you can go to your local bookstore like still north who's here tonight selling copies so thank you so much for joining us thank you to the Howe library corporation thank you kelly thank you thank you to our amazing producers megan coleman and jared dennis who are here tonight and still north books for being here to sell books thank you to all of our listeners and audience